Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Folks, this week we're going to tackle the elephant in the room. That's right, we're going to talk about gun control. Now, with the recent rash of mass shootings, the tragedies that have taken place, of course gun control has come to the forefront. But one has to ask the question, is this really a gun control issue? Or are there other solutions as well? true it shouldn't be easy for somebody with mental conditions to purchase a firearm but do we have adequate protection at our schools are they as protected as the security we see at the airport or at our local bank are we spending billions of dollars aiding other countries that could be spent to provide resource officers at every school in the United States? These are questions that also need to be asked. So, let's dive into this and see if we can figure something out. Now, I found it interesting to go back and look at what our forefathers had to say about the issue of guns. And I found a great site, the James Madison Research Library and Information Center. And in it, there's a ton of information about what our forefathers thought when it came to gun control. Now, I found some quotes by none other than George Mason. He was an American planner and a politician, a founding father, and one of the delegates to the U.S. Constitutional Convention of 1787. And I quote, To disarm the people. That was the best and most effectual way to enslave them. He went on to say, I ask, sir, what is the militia? It is the whole people, except for a few public officials. There it is. All this argument over a well-regulated militia. Our forefathers knew that the militia was all of us. We are the militia. Now, he went on to say, all democratic governments, where the power is in the hands of the people and where there is not the least difficulty or jealousy about putting arms into the hands of every man in the country, 
European countries should not be ignorant of the strength and the force of such a form of government and how strenuously and almost wonderfully people living under one have sometimes exerted themselves in defense of their rights and liberties and how fatally it has ended with many a man and many a state who have entered into quarrels, wars, and contests with countries such as this. George Mason. Now think about that. Now at Philadelphia in 1787, Mason was one of the five most frequent speakers at the Constitutional Convention. He exerted great influence, but during the last two weeks of the convention, he decided not to sign the document. That's right, he was there through the whole debate, and he said, I'm not signing it. Now his refusal came at great surprise, especially since his name is so closely linked with the Constitution. And he explained his reasons at length, citing the absence of a declaration of rights as his primary concern. He then discussed the provisions of the Constitution point by point, beginning with the House of Representatives. Now pay attention here, folks. I find this fascinating. He said the House he criticized as not truly representative of the people and the Senate as too powerful. He also claimed that the power of the federal judiciary would destroy the state judiciaries, render justice unattainable, and enable the rich to oppress and ruin the poor. These fears led Mason to conclude that the new government was destined to either become a monarchy or fall into the hands of a corrupt, oppressive aristocracy. Wow. Guy must have had a crystal ball. Now, the right to keep and bear arms can claim an ancestry stretching for well over a thousand years. The age of the right is so great that it is almost impossible to document its actual beginning. It is fairly clear that its origin lay in the customs of Germanic tribes, under which arms-bearing was a right and a duty of free men. In fact, the ceremony for giving freedom to a slave required that the former slave be presented with the armament of a free man. He then acquired the duty to serve in an equivalent of a citizen army. Now, these customs were brought into England by the earliest Germanic tribes, the Saxons, the first mention of a citizen army, what they called a FYRD, F-Y-R-D, is found in documents dating to 690 A.D. 690 A.D. But scholars have concluded that the duty to serve in such, in such an, an organization with personal armament is older than our oldest records. Now, 18th century legal historians attribute the origin of the English system to Alfred the Great, who ruled the late 9th century A.D. In England, a system evolved whereby peasant armament became the status quo and individual armament became viewed as a right rather than a threat. This, in turn, significantly changed the evolution of political systems in Britain. Since so much military power lay with the private citizens, the traditional monarchy became a much more limited monarchy than an absolute one. Even after the Norman conquest of 1066, 
which brought feudal systems into Britain, kings regularly had to appeal to the people for assistance. William Rufus, the second Norman king of England, appealed to the citizenry to put down a rebellion of the feudal barons. The citizenry, citizenry rose with their arms and defended his government against the rebels. After his death, his brother, Henry I, often drilled the citizen units in person, seeking to stay on the good side of the individual members. In short, kingship in Britain became a far more democratic affair than it would ever become on the continent of Europe because of the individual armament of the British citizen. Henry II, who is considered the father of British common law, created the Assize of Arms in 1181. This required all British citizens between 15 and 40 to purchase and keep arms. The type of arms required varied with wealth. The wealthiest had to provide themselves with full armor, sword, dagger, and warhorse, while even the poorest people, the whole community of freemen they referred to, must have a leather armor, helmet, and a lance. Now twice a year all citizens were to be inspected by the king's officials to ensure that they possessed the necessary arms. Conversely, the English made it quite clear that the king was to be expected to depend exclusively upon his armed freemen, not a standing army. Now Henry III continued this tradition. In his 1253 A Seize of Arms, he expanded the age categories to include everyone between 15 and 60 years old. Everybody between 15 and 60 in the kingdom was required to have arms. The government is requiring you to own weapons. Just the opposite of where we're at today. In addition, not only were freemen to be armed, but even serfs. Now all citizens, serfs, and peasants from 15 to 60 years of age were legally required to be armed. Now this is in 1253, folks. Think about that. Even the poorest classes of these were required to have a pole arm with an axe and a spike head and a knife, plus a bow if they own lands worth over two pounds sterling. Under Queen Elizabeth, the English militia system developed even further. It was during her reign that the phrase militia was first used to describe the concept of a universally armed people ready to stand in defense of their nation. That's right, she defined militia again. She says that it was the concept of a universally armed people. That's militia, folks. Now, the militia were now mustered by county lieutenants and called to formal musters to display and practice their weapons. Now, think about that. There is an English law that our forefathers' grandparents were under that required them, required them to own weapons and to once a month stop and practice. Now, think about that. When they came to America... They were still British citizens. They were still under English law. And yes, they still practiced what was taught to them under the Assize of Arms. When you hear about the Minutemen, folks, it wasn't that big of a stretch for these people to come together to be ready to defend themselves. 
They'd been doing it for hundreds of years in England with the sole purpose of defending themselves. And they practiced on a regular basis. And these musters got to be almost like a social thing. The women would cook up a bunch of food, and the kids would play, and the men would all come together once a month, and they'd practice shooting at targets. So sure enough, when the revolution came, our forefathers were ready. And the reason why? English law required them to be ready. Pretty fascinating when you think about it. Now, James II was a Catholic who came to power in this Protestant nation back in the 1600s. And he comes to the throne and tries to enforce laws on disarmament, directing them with increasing force against Protestants. Now think about that. He's going to come in there and try and take these guns away. Now it's been tradition that everybody is forced to arm themselves. The people are Protestant. And now a Catholic comes in and says, we need to disarm these guys. Well, he was smart. He knew that if he wants to enforce his laws, he needs to get the, hands, get the guns out of the hands of the citizens. Now, he tried to obtain permission to expand the standing army and complained that during rebellion the militia was not sufficient for such occasions and that there's nothing but a good source, force of well-disciplined troops in constant pay that can defend us. Parliament said no way, but James kept a limited standing army for himself. Now, a royal order came from the king for disarming the population, and Parliament threw an absolute fit. They knew what he was going to do, and in 1688, Parliament contacted King James, the son-in-law and daughter, William of Orange, and his wife, Mary offering them the position of king and queen of England, which came to be known as the Glorious Revolution. King James could see he didn't stand a chance, and he now fled to Denmark. Parliament now immediately passed a law called the Declaration of Rights, which listed complaints against James and argued that these had forfeited him the right to rule. After William accepted this declaration as defining the rights of Englishmen, he was permitted to assume the throne and call a parliament, which then enacted the Declaration as the Bill of Rights under William and Mary. The Declaration listed a variety of civil liberties, which James was accused of infringing. Prominent amongst these was the right to keep and bear arms. The form finally adopted complained that James had violated the liberties of the kingdom by keeping a standing army, and moreover, by causing his Protestant subjects to be disarmed. It accordingly resolved that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. So not just Catholics, but now also Protestants could all be armed. Now, since only slightly over 1% of the population was then Catholic, it amounted to a general right to own arms applicable to virtually all Englishmen. Now, this background, that of a tradition of an armed citizenry, formed the background of the political views of our founding fathers, 
who drafted our Constitution. The early colonists brought their own arms and secured additional ones from the colonial government. As early as September 1622, they were being armed not only but with muskets, but also with pistols. Virginia, in 1623, ordered that each plantation was to ensure that there was sufficient powder and ammunition within the plantation. In 1631, it ordered that no one worked their fields unarmed and required militia musters on a weekly basis following church services. They came right out and said, All men that are fitting to bear arms shall bring their guns to church. (laughs) Now, by 1673, the colony provided that persons unable to purchase firearms from their own finances would be supplied guns by the government and required to pay a reasonable price when able to do so. So the government was actually furnishing the arms. Similar legislation was imposed in other colonies. Now the first session of the legislature of the New Plymouth Colony required that every free man or other inhabitant of this colony provide for himself and each under him able to bear arms a sufficient musket and other serviceable piece for war. Similar measures were enacted in Connecticut in 1650. Now, when the colonies began drifting towards revolution following the elections of 1760, the colonists were thus well equipped for their role. The British government began extensive troop movements into Boston in 1768 to reduce opposition, and the town government responded by urging its citizens to arm themselves and be be prepared to defend themselves against the British soldiers. Now, when Tories, pro-King colonists, responded that this order was illegal, the colonial newspapers responded that the right of personal armament was guaranteed to every Englishman. The New York Journal argued that the proposal was a measure as prudent as it was legal, and that it is a natural right which the people have reserved to themselves, confirmed by the Bill of Rights, this is the English Bill of Rights, to keep arms for their own defense. Now, folks, think about this. I mean, even back then, it was clear the right to keep and bear arms. Before we had a country, before we had a Declaration of Independence, before we had a Constitution, our forefathers were adamant that you had the right to keep and bear arms. Now, there can be little doubt from these newspaper articles that the American colonists viewed the English 1688 Declaration of Rights as recognizing an individual right to own private firearms for self-defense, even if that defense is against government agents. Because bear in mind, that's what they were calling for, to defend themselves from their own government, which was the English government at the time. Now, Massachusetts towns had instituted the Minuteman, a group of select militia. Others formed special companies of militia, one of which in Virginia included none other than George Washington and George Mason, who would later draft the Virginia Declaration of Rights. In December, the Maryland Convention called upon the colonies to form a well-regulated militia and defined what it meant 
by instructing all citizens between the ages of 16 and 50 to arm themselves and form into companies. The following month, the Fairfax, Virginia Committee of Public Safety, chaired by none other than George Washington, further defined its intent with the comment that a well-regulated militia composed of gentlemen, freeholders, and other freemen is the natural strength and only security of a free government, and recommended that all persons between 16 and 50 provide themselves with good firelocks. When Patrick Henry, Henry shortly thereafter gave his famed Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech, the resolution which he proposed by his speech began, resolved that a well-regulated militia composed of gentlemen and freemen is the natural strength and only security of a free government. Wow, think about that. Now, the Colonials did not have long to wait. General Gage, the military governor of Boston, British general, was already writing to London with regard to the idea of disarming certain counties. In April 1775, General Gage made the big mistake of conducting a raid upon a militia arsenal in Concord, Massachusetts. It was along the way to Concord that the Battle of Lexington took place, and a number of colonists were killed. Following their raid on Concord, the British had to fight their way back to Boston, attacked under the harassing fire of militia who swarmed in on all sides of the road. The British lost nearly 300 men and killed, wounded, and missing. Within a few days, 16,000, that's right, 16,000 militiamen descended upon Boston and laid siege to the area. During a British attack on Bunker Hill, shortly thereafter, colonial sharpshooters inflicted disastrous losses on British troops. Over a thousand British regulars fell. 40% of the attacking force, over a tenth of the entire British army in the colonies. Officers suffered especially serious losses because all, all of them wanted to make a name for themselves. So when they asked for volunteers to charge the hill, the officers all volunteered, and we wiped out nearly three-quarters of the British officer corps. One rifleman was said to have shot down 20 officers in 10 minutes. Every single member of General Gage's staff was shot down. Now, following the war, the colonies were temporarily governed under something called the Articles of Confederation. We've talked about this in the past. It was a real mess. Each state had one vote, and the federal government was run by Congress with no president. Can you imagine that today? Now, during these years, a number of militia proposals were put forward by George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and even Friedrich von Steuben and Henry Knox. All involved a general militia in which every free citizen would serve. By 1787, the difficulties with the Articles of Confederation were becoming insurmountable, and work began on a new constitution. In the state conventions called to ratify the constitution, the proposal faced serious opposition. A major part of the op opposition 
later termed anti-federalist, focused on the fact that the Constitution lacked a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, the British Bill of Rights, was called upon as a precedent for such a measure. In the conflicts in the states, three themes related to citizen armament soon became apparent. The first was the acceptance by both Federalist and Anti-Federalist of the critical role of the armed citizen. The second was a distrust of standing armies. After all, they just fought a revolution against a king who used a standing army against them. And the third was pressure for a Bill of Rights, which would include provisions guaranteeing the rights of individual armament. The Bill of Rights, folks, are restrictions on the federal government. They were written for the sole purpose of protecting us from the government. Think about that. Thus, the Second Amendment was born. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There it is. It's pretty clear. The Congress itself made its intent even more clear when the Second Congress adopted the Militia Act of 1792, and this required every free, able-bodied white male citizen who is or shall be of the age of 18 and under the age of 45 years to be enrolled in the militia and within six months thereafter provide himself with a good musket or fire lock, plus ammunition and equipment. Now, folks, that bill remained in the books until 1903. That's a pretty long run between 1792 and 1903. The government was requiring, requiring that you had to be in, quote, the militia and have a weapon. The founding fathers felt that citizens should be able to protect themselves against the government and any other threat to their well-being or personal freedom. The Second Amendment granted citizens that right, giving them the ability to defend themselves and their property. Now, I know there's been a lot of controversy, and it's even made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Several court cases have legally set precedent for how the Second Amendment is interpreted since it was ratified in 1791, and the most relevant to gun owners today is the District of Columbia versus Heller, H-E-L-L-E-R. And this was in 2008. Now, on June 26, 2008, the Supreme Court affirmed that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear arms for lawful uses. The court decision was a breakthrough for Second Amendment rights. It meant that the Founding Fathers' intention to grant that individual right could not be misinterpreted by those seeking to pass unconstitutional gun control legislation. The ruling read in part, The Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess a firearm unconnected, unconnected with service in a militia, and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. So hopefully you all can see that based on the history of our forefathers and laws enacted by Congress in the initial years of our country, as well as the statements of the drafters and their associates, there can be little doubt that the drafters of the Second Amendment viewed that amendment as creating an individual right to keep and carry arms for purposes ranging from self-protection to hunting 
to acquisition of military skills for the defense of our nation. So what do you think, folks? I personally think we have a right to keep and bear arms. Will gun control stop the mass shootings? Probably not. So where else shall we look? That's all I have for today, folks. I'm Professor Jim Paisley. If you would like to help me continue these shows, it's as simple as clicking the support link where you access this podcast. Thanks, and be sure to remember your history.